So if you have uh, an open Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2, or if you're already there, you can bookmark that place. This is our third message in Advent. Usually have four, didn't work out for us, we only had three. But the topic has been Advent. Advent, the arrival of someone noteworthy. And we've celebrated the first week um, waiting in hope. For Advent, for a lot of people, it's you're, you're waiting and you're hopeful. You don't wait as the world waits hope, in hopelessness. You wait with hope. And also, the last week, we, we talked about Advent beholding greatness, beholding His greatness. Advent is about beholding something that's astonishing, that's transformative, that's life-changing, that's identity-shifting, that's behavioral-changing. Uh, it, it's beholding Christ. And so today, in our third and final Advent message, we're going to talk about celebrating peace. Celebrating peace. And just as a, as a story to help you understand how important this is, I want to talk about the last Japanese imperial soldier who surrendered. I don't know if you've heard this story before. It's been a long time since I mentioned it. But in 1940, there was a soldier in Japan named Hiru Onada. He enlisted in the Japanese Imperial Army. He was trained as an intelligence officer, but he also proved himself to be a worthy combat soldier. And so when World War I, excuse me, two, <laughs> when World War II broke out, he was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang in 1944. And his orders were simple. Take over and occupy the island defend it from the enemy attacks, and chart the movement of American ships. And then he was given three instructions. They were very clear for him. Number one, do not surrender under any circumstances. Don't surrender. Number two, do not take your own life under any circumstances, which would in some ways be a form of surrender, right? And rule number three, do not ever trust the enemy's propaganda. Don't be enticed by all these tricks and tactics that the enemy will use to seduce you into surrender. So don't surrender under any circumstances. Don't take your own life and don't trust the enemy's propaganda. So within three months, the enemy was completely overtaken by American and Philippine forces and all the Japanese soldiers were either killed or captured or surrendered. All but Hiru and three of his soldiers who ran into the hills. And if you know history, just months later in August... 1945, the United States bombed Hiroshima, and Japan surrendered. The war was over. Peace treaties were negotiated and signed. Soldiers were sent home, and life returned to normal, and there was peace for everyone except for Hiru, the Japanese soldier who was hiding on the Philippine island of Labang in the mountains with his three men. They had no knowledge at all of the surrender or what had happened. They were still very much at war. They hid in the dense jungles of that island. They attacked everyone who they encountered that was not Japanese. They remained in hiding. They were fearful of death. They were fearful of being discovered. They were fearful of getting ambushed. They were fearful of defeat. Well, within four years, now just let that sink in for a minute. Four years of this hiding. Within four years, only Haru remained. His comrades were all gone, either captured or killed. And he was in all-out war mode. He was like this Japanese Rambo, man, on this island. Still at war years after the real war was over and peace had been declared. He didn't know. He was a terror to the entire island. The natives 
were afraid of him and they despised him. They actually called him the demon of the mountain. This was like almost a legend, like a Sasquatch. Everyone knew he was there, but nobody could see him because he was in Rambo mode. He still had a rifle, a samurai sword, grenades, and plenty of ammo. And he would fire shots at anyone that got close. He was at war. So what did they do? Well, here's what happened. The villagers left notes for him that read, the war ended on August 15th. Come out. <laughs> they left those posters all over the island in places they knew he would see them. But of course, what was his instructions? Don't trust the enemy propaganda. Don't be tricked or seduced. So he dismissed those posters from the villagers. He was suspicious. Finally, the Japanese government was notified, and they said, come get your soldier, dude. <laughs> come get him, or we're going to kill him if we can find him. <laughs> so they dropped thousands of leaflets from an airplane onto the island that were informing him of the Japanese surrender, and they ordered him to leave peacefully. He found the leaflets, and he studied them, and what was his conclusion? More tricks. Enemy propaganda. My commanding officer told me this would happen. So, then Philippine soldiers searched for him, but the jungle was so dense, and this dude was so good at camouflage, they couldn't find him. It was difficult to see 10 feet in front of you in this jungle, and he was like an animal, and he was dangerous, so it's not really what you want to walk into looking for somebody like that, all right? So, eight more years went by. 15 years since the war had ended. Wrap your mind around that, guys. 15 years. And he was declared legally dead in Japan. But he was still very much alive. Hiding in the dense jungle, alone, tired, angry, afraid. He survived by stealing food from villagers, from picking coconuts and bananas. And he became a legend in his own country. Even though he was declared dead, some people still speculated about his survival. Finally, 29 years later, 1974, a Japanese hippie, and college dropout named Suzuki. Used to have a motorcycle like that. He named, uh, named Suzuki, decided to go search for him. He arrived on the island, and within four days, he found Hiru. And he befriended him. He earned his trust. And he finally convinced this Rambo, Japanese Rambo, that the war was indeed over. And he persuaded him to return home. Now, witnesses who watched Hiru surrender said that he wept uncontrollably. He could not stop crying as he surrendered his weapons because he was relieved. Finally, after like 30 years pretty much of, of living and hiding with a war, he, in a war he couldn't possibly win, facing the shame of his superior officer if he, if he violated his commandments to not surrender under any circumstances, wanted to kill himself, but he was commanded, don't do that. Finally, he surrendered his weapons. No more paranoia. No more looking over your soldiers or your shoulders. <laughs> um, and although he had reportedly killed over 30 villagers, stole food for three decades, and terrorized the entire region, he was granted total amnesty by the Philippine government because he was ignorant of Japan's surrender. Isn't that an interesting story? You say, why in the world are you telling that at a Christmas service? Because I believe, my friends, that there are still people who, if they were honest, are like spiritual holdouts in the same way that our friend Haru was a military holdout. Peace has been declared, 
And the war is over, man. It's done. You can go home. You can flourish. You can thrive. You can live. You can be at peace. But they don't believe it. That news is just simply too good to be true. So they live in fear and they live in paranoia. And they're always kind of mentally and spiritually looking over their shoulder because they think God is out to get, God's out to get them. This good news about the gospel can't possibly be true for me because my heart is so dark. If God only knew, if people only knew what I've done, there's no way that I could be at peace with God. That's what they believe. So there's like a spiritual holdout. But the Bible has a lot to say about peace, and it all started with this declaration and this passage that Melissa read for us. And so I want us to... Uh, I want us to notice a few things about peace from this story. Number one, the surprising roots of peace. Because these angels and these shepherds are talking about peace. Where's this peace going to come from? Well, there's surprising source, the surprising roots. And then the surprising recipients of this peace. Who's it for? And then finally, the surprising results. So that's going to be our outline today and what we talk about the rest of the time. Number one, the surprising source. So let's look at it again. Chapter 2, starting, uh, we already read from verse 8, but I want to look at what the angels actually said when they appeared. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, check this out, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's an amazing announcement. That's an amazing declaration. Peace. There is peace. Christmas actually means the end of war. You may not think of it that way. You may think of a bunch of other stuff. But I mean, we get the word peace. It's it's in cards. It's in movies. It's placarded all over the place during the Christmas season. And a lot of it comes from this verse in the Bible, from this story, when the angels came and, and confronted these shepherds peace on earth. It's interesting because the Bible says there's, there's this uh, heavenly host praising God. You know the word in Greek for heavenly host is like an army. <laughs> Isn't that odd of God? He sent this army of angels to announce peace, right? But this announcement was so important, he knew he had to get these shepherds' attention so they would pay attention to it. And he did that. He sent these angels with this incredible announcement. Peace on earth. That's the message that the shepherds heard that night on the Bethlehem hillside. Now, before we develop this point, uh, I, want, I want to get technical for just a minute because I don't know what translation you use in the Bible. And I grew up watching uh, the Charlie Brown special, Lucy and Linus, and, you know, that was the, the King James Version, which is a really good translation, but I don't like the way they interpreted this part because it could very easily lead you to believe that these angels came and they're like, peace, peace on earth with men of goodwill. In other words, God's got this peace up there in heaven and he's going to give it to you if you have goodwill, if you're good enough. If you're on the nice list and not the naughty list, good news for you, there's peace for you. But that's not a good translation. The translation actually in the ESV is, is dead on and it says peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, God has this declaration of peace By way of an announcement, Christ the Savior has been born. He's been sent to you. If you believe that announcement, peace to you. He's pleased with your belief and he will give you the peace that that you long for and that you seek. So God's peace is not a reward for those who have goodwill. 
It's a gracious gift for those who believe in Christ. But peace is the focus here. And it's, it's what we want to talk about in this message, peace. What's the opposite of peace? That's a question I have for you. So, thank you. Man, it's so cold in here. People are like, I don't know, just hurry up. This is good news, peace, peace. But listen, I got to be honest with you as your pastor. I want to be a faithful, biblical, Christian, evangelical pastor. And if the good news is that there is peace to be had between humans and God, there's some unsettling implications there that we got to talk about. Do you know what they are? If God's announcing peace between human beings and God, the, implications is, the implication is that there was war before right? So, man, we don't like that. We're like, no, 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 no. God's all love and like God cares so deeply about us, which is true. Uh, and, and we're good with God. We always have been God. We're his children and, you know, peace and all, and all that stuff. <clears throat> but the good news of the gospel has to be preceded by the bad news about our condition, right? The Bible has a lot to say about the condition that God finds us in when he comes and inspects us, Right? In fact, I want to read something to you. You can turn there if you want uh, so that you can see it for yourself. Romans chapter 3 is an arrest warrant for humanity. <laughs> you know, whenever somebody gets arrested, they get a rap sheet. You're under arrest for whatever it is. And Romans 3 is like a spiritual arrest warrant. The book of Romans is all about the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of faith. But in the very beginning of Romans, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul tells us about our condition. And, and he sums it up by quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament passages and, and stacking them together. And it's really interesting. This, this is what he says. Verse 9, I want to start. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and by the way, that's every human being who's ever been born, okay? You're either a Jew or you're a non-Jew. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. Jew or Greek, right? Both Jews and Greeks all are under sin as it is written. Now check this out. Here's the rap sheet. Here's the arrest warrant for you and for me. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's a poisonous snake, if you're wondering. Their throat is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, verse 17, you can underline that one, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here's this arrest warrant. Here's this rap sheet of all the spiritual crimes we've committed. And you know what? It's comprehensive. It deals with our character, our conduct, and our conversation. Comprehensively, the Bible says we are unrighteous in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, and our actions. And then verse 17 is like this little summarizing statement. The way of peace they had not known. What's that talking about? It's talking about there's war in our heart. Because we don't have peace vertically with God, that manifests itself in a myriad of ways horizontally with our relationship with other people, with our relationship with other organizations and groups of people. 
That's why we find this war. And it's just really interesting to me that if you're reading Luke chapter 2, we didn't read the whole chapter. We don't have time to do that. We don't need to. But if you back up all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about in those days, uh, a decree went out from Caesar, from Augustus Caesar, that the whole world would be numbered. And did you know that Augustus Caesar at that time was Octavius Caesar? And he was, he was known as the emperor of peace. Did you guys know that in Roman history? Jesus was born during the reign of an emperor who apparently had brought peace to Rome and to Israel. He was known as the emperor of peace. After 206 years of like bloody war, finally, they were, there was peace in Rome. There was even this treaty called the, the, the Pax Romana. Peace everywhere. No more strife, no more civil wars. And so Octavius Caesar like used his reign to build and strengthen the borders, establish relations with other countries, to strengthen their language. It was really amazing. But what he could not do and did not do is settle the issue of unrest, unsettledness in people's hearts. Because he can't do that. Did you guys know that? The government can't give you the spiritual peace we so long for. They can't. They try, they create laws, which are good laws, and they legislate as best they can justice, but they cannot change the condition of the human heart. No emperor can. I don't care how much authority that he has. And in fact, most emperors can't even control their own heart, like we talked about last week. If you look at the history, if you, if you read the author Suetonius, his book, The Twelve Caesars, they're some of the most disgusting, perverted, vile, corrupt leaders you will ever read about in your life. <laughs> right? They couldn't even control the peace in their own heart, and so how in the world are they going to introduce it to their country? But one person had this to say, a pagan Roman philosopher, non-religious, he wrote this, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than ever for outward peace. You say, what are you saying, pastor? I'm saying the source of this peace is it should surprise us if we've been listening to the world because it comes from heaven. There is nothing that we could get peace from on this cursed planet, nothing. No individual, no system. I know the government is, and I'm not anti-government, by the way, okay? The government is, is, is supposed to legislate law, the Bible says, and to, you know, stand for what is good. And I know they can't even discern what's good anymore. Most, most uh, you know, many, if not most government officials, because they're not using the Bible as their standard. I remember even back in the 80s as, as a young kid, I remember Ronald Reagan saying this. You may remember this. He said the nine most terrifying words in the human language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You remember that? Now that's the president saying that. <laughs> right? And I'm not anti, guys, please don't, please don't misunderstand. I'm not up here making political rants, okay? All I'm saying is the true peace that we all long for in our hearts, spiritual peace, it has to come from God because that's the one we're at war with, Romans chapter 3 says. If we don't have peace from God, everything else is just a facade. It's just a cover-up. It's just a band-aid. It really is. And history has been really proof of that. Um... Christmas is about peace coming down for he from heaven. The angels didn't say God's got a plan for peace. They didn't say he's got a principle for peace. They said there's a person of peace coming. There's a prince of peace and you need him. Without him, there's no hope at all, none. Nothing from this cursed 
planet could be our Savior, Jesus had to be. And you say, why, why are you saying this? Because it's Christmas season, and I hear so many mixed messages, especially, anyway. Let me... Years ago, there was an article in the New York Times, and it said this, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Now, I'll, I'm a pastor, and I want to be a critical thinker, and I want you to be too. And that sounds lovely on the surface, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want that? Anybody in here not want unity and peace? I do. I do. Sign me up. But this, just the wording here, check this out now. Love will triumph. Amen. It will. I agree. In a way that the author has no clue about, love will triumph one day. And then he says, and that we will be able, uh, we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Is that what Christmas means? That you and I will be able to build this thing, man. Like we're, we're engineers of peace all of a sudden. Man, where do we get that power? Because it's like, it's the year 2020, right? And we've been waiting a long time for somebody to come together and put this thing together, like a big Lego set of peace. I'm still waiting on it. We still got wars. Hey, listen, let's just, be, let's just be honest here, man. It's like America's in civil war right now, right? Our Congress is at war with one another. And you're telling me we can put together this world of unity and peace? I don't think so. Hadn't happened. Won't happen until the Prince of Peace is on his throne. That's the only way that can ever happen. And if we would listen to the Bible, we would know that. No emperor, no president, no congressman, no senator, no parent, no school. Listen, the problem is not we just need to be educated. The problem is not we need better laws and better systems. Some of those things are true, but that ain't going to bring in the peace that you long for. It's not. And if you look throughout history, it's interesting to me. Galatians chapter 4, I believe, says, when the fullness of time, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born under the law, to save the world. Pretty much, I'm paraphrasing that last part. To deliver the world, to save the world from sin. When the fullness of time had come. Have you ever thought, honestly, God, why'd you wait so long? Why did you wait so long before Jesus was born? I mean, you could have saved this world a lot of war, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of injustice, couldn't he? I think... I think God knows how doubtful and suspicious we are. And, and if Adam and Eve would have sinned in the garden and then they would have had baby Jesus, we'd have been like, ah, thank you, but if you'd have just waited, we could have done it. We would have, right? Adam and Eve didn't bring in peace. Their first two sons couldn't. Uh, in fact, one, yeah, one killed the other, right? Right after that. And then let's see, there was this uh, colossal worldwide global flood, right? Right, because wickedness was so pervasive on the earth God had to destroy it uh, and then there was the Tower of Babel which was the world coming together right in, in, in unity to build peace right they, they did that at the Tower of Babel and, and God judged them because that was rebellion against God you, listen follow the whole history of the Old Testament and even beyond the time of the Bible just follow historical development and you will see we've had the best and the brightest and the cleverest educators, philosophers, kings, rulers. How'd that go for us? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Where are all the wise men? Where are the scribes? Where are, where are all these type A, alpha, going to put this thing together and get it going? Where are they all at? Because, listen, they've all came and gone, and the world is worse than it's ever been. And, and I, would, I would tell you this as a Christian. 
I, lo- I love talking to my kids about this because they're like, can we really, some of them are like, can we really trust the Bible? It's like, you know what? Great question. Let's put the Bible to the test. What does the Bible say about humanity? What does the Bible say about the world? Does it line up with what we're seeing? Yes. Does the Bible, did the Bible say this would happen? Yes, it did. Did the Bible say we would try to fix it? Yep. And did the Bible say we would fail? Yes, it did. And did it say our only hope is Jesus? That's exactly what the Bible said. We've had the best, we've had the brightest, and the world is in a worse condition than it's ever been in. Crime, injustice, poverty, it's all there. I don't need to belabor this. You know, it's very evident to any thinking person that looks around. We've got more prisons, more crime, more poverty, more injustice, racism still around, more oppression, more wars, more divorce, more abortions, more confusion about sexuality, sex trafficking, pornography, anger, hate, violence, murder, drugs, crime. How, how do we do bringing that peace thing on? Right? Is that what Christmas really is? We are able? I reject that. I'm sorry. It's, it's nice sentimentally sounding, but it's just dead wrong. We're not able. In fact, the faster you come to that conclusion, the better off you're going to be. Because that's part of your confessing Jesus as Lord, is that you're not. You can't. You, you won't. You're not able. We don't even have the, we don't even have the, the capability to do it. So I vote no on the New York Times article. Sorry, New York Times. We're not able. We haven't been able. We never will be able. Only one Savior claimed to take away our sins. Listen, I've never heard any ruler or never read about any emperor. And by the way, when Octavius, Octavius, Octavius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and Augustus means highly elevated and exalted one. When he was born, did you know that the announcement of his birth was very similar to what the angels told these shepherds? God, your Savior, has been born. <laughs> Savior of the world is born. But it, Caesar, Caesar couldn't bring salvation. Only Jesus can do that. Only one Savior has ever claimed to lay down his life and die for your sins. I've never read of a Roman emperor doing that. Have you? I've never read of a Roman emperor saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you peace. I'll die for my enemies. Have you ever read about a leader doing that? I'm going to bring peace by dying for my enemies and forgiving them. Never happened, but once, only once. So listen, while Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who claim like that article, if we just unite, we can usher this era of peace in, but listen, neither does. Don't fall off on the other side. Neither does it agree with the pessimist who claim there's no solution. There is a solution. We've just missed it or rejected it. And that's my message today. Don't reject it. Don't reject the only source of peace God has ever offered humanity. It's Jesus. He may be scorned and mocked and ridiculed and rejected, but he's the prince of peace. No hope of peace exists apart from him. None. And I will tell you this, people that scoff and mock and make fun of the Bible and make fun of like the sermons of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, if their hearts were changed, to actually do what the Bible commands us to do, there'd never be another war in history. (laughs) Right? That's what's so interesting to me. Um, I am reading a biography right now of George Whitfield that Steve Ekman was kind enough to give me. Thank you, Steve. And I was told this will rock your world and wreck you in a wonderful way. And man, it has. It has. And you always learn something new when you're reading a biography. See, the Great Awakening hit... England, London, England, and then it swept to the, America, uh, to the American colonies. We weren't America yet. It was 1740s. 
Um, we were just colonies that had, you know, claimed our independence from, from England. But the Great Awakening started during that time. And it was started by a few men, uh, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, who were brothers. And I had no idea how deplorable the conditions were in England and in the colonies when that Great Awakening had started. That's the first, like, 100 pages of this biography is telling how bad it had gotten. I had no idea. Crime, alcoholism, because I always just thought those people were really, you know, the Victorian area, they were really good externally and they obeyed the law and they got along together and then they were already believing in Jesus pretty much and then these Great Awakening evangelists came and it just got even better. That's not the case at all. Christianity was pretty much considered a myth when these evangelists came on the scene. And the government was trying to do everything it could to stem the tide of crime, and it couldn't. And I read this. I want to read this to you. I don't, I don't quote a whole lot of people, but please listen to this because it so beautifully uh, makes the point that I'm trying to make here, okay? So this guy was writing about the conditions of London, alcoholism, crime, robbery, open debauchery, atheism, and he says this, but England was startled by the sound of a voice. It was the voice of a 22-year-old preacher who was declaring the gospel in London pulpits with such fervor and power that no church could hold the multitudes that flocked to hear him. His voice continued to be heard and then was joined by the voices of John and Charles Wesley and of many others in a tremendous chorus of praise and preaching that rang throughout the land and was sustained in strength for more than half a century. The effect of that gospel preaching, that's all it was, guys. It was these men that started preaching the gospel in the pulpits. And people flocked to hear it because nobody else was doing it. And this man says this, the effect has been described in these words. Now listen really carefully to this. A religious revival burst forth which changed in a few years the whole temper of English society. The church was restored to life and activity. Religion carried to the hearts of the people a fresh spirit of moral zeal while it purified our literature and our manners. A new philanthropy reformed our prisons, infused clemency and wisdom into our penal laws, abolished the slave trade, and gave the first impulse to popular education. That is so interesting to me, and here's why. Now, some of you may get really mad at me, but that's okay. I really feel like I need to say this because there's so much going on in Christianity. There's all these wars going on, and I don't know if you've heard. I don't always bring up the debates to you because some of you have never heard of them, and it wouldn't do you any good for me to tell you. But there's like this ongoing debate. Should churches be concerned with what's going on socially? Some people may call it like a social, are you a social justice warrior? Should the church care about equality and uh, both racially, uh, um, gender equality, men and women? Should we care about all the things going on in our culture and going on in society? Or should we just kind of mind our own business and preach the gospel? By the way, that's a false dichotomy. They're not mutually exclusive, okay? But that's, that's been raging for, for like five or six years now. And I've heard people, I've, I've, I've read the debates and, and, it's, it, and it grieves my heart because here, here's my answer to you. And I prayed I would keep my opinion out of this. This is just what I see in the Bible. I think every Christian should care tremendously about what's going on in our culture and should care tremendously about justice in society. 
Hands down, we should. You should care. You have a, a, a Christian responsibility to care about these things and to do everything that you can to relieve suffering in the world, both temporary suffering like hunger um, and eternal suffering like souls that perish, okay? But let me say this. Those things, will, those things are Band-Aids, and those things really ultimately can't happen until the gospel takes root in a human being's heart and changes them from the inside out. That's what's so interesting to me is that George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the gospel in a way it had never been preached before. And do you see the outcome? Society was changed. Education, prison, the government, alcoholism waned. Prison reform took place. And it wasn't because these guys were up here just talking about those social issues. There's a time, I mean, you read the prophets, there's a time and a place to do that. But if that's the only thing that you talk about and preach about, the true reform is never going to happen. You're just going to put a Band-Aid over it. And I just, I just wanted to tell you that. I think it's important for you to maybe hear where your pastor stands on these things. I don't think those things are false dichotomies. I think everyone in this congregation ought to care about what's going on in society. And it's interesting to me as your pastor, I see like an, a, a Christian army here ready to be mobilized to go out there and help. But if we gather together every Sunday and the only thing I talk about is, is, is a social issue, which we should, and I want to talk about those, but the gospel drives change. I believe that. That's, that's been the heart of this church since we were planted, is that grace changes everything. Sometimes grace even changes our lackadaisical and apathetic approach to what's going on out there. That's sinful to not care. But the gospel has to change you from the inside out or you're not going to be any good to anybody. So that's just interesting. The surprising source of peace. That's point one. You're thinking, oh goodness. That's just the first point. We just got two more short points, okay? Point number two, the surprising recipients. The surprising source of peace is it came from heaven, right? The surprising recipients are the shepherds. Shepherds. I don't know what you know about shepherds, but I can tell you this. They were a despised group of people. They weren't trusted. They were dirty. They were unclean. Did you know that shepherds couldn't go into the temple and worship? Because they were around so many unclean things, touching dead things. Their, their, their testimony was not admissible in court. Why? Because nobody believed them. Nobody trusted them. Nobody wanted to be around them. But isn't it interesting, friends, that the, the people group that God and in his infinite wisdom and mercy and love chose to first announce the arrival of Christ was this despised group of outsiders. Smelly, stinky, unbelieving, homeless, right? He chose them. That's more than just a dig into, you know, Jesus didn't come to a priest. He didn't come to, uh, uh, the, the angels didn't go to a priest or to a rabbi. They didn't go to the palace. They didn't go to the temple. They came to little old Bethlehem and some smelly, stinky outsiders called shepherds that were on the out, you know, outskirts of society. They came to them. And here's what's really interesting to me. I was telling Sarah this week. It, it says in, in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 8, while they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. They were, you know, God's grace just surprises us right where we're at. Don't you like that? I mean, I needed it this week. It's like, while they were parenting, <laughs> there was this announcement that came. Hey, good news. Great joy for all peoples. Don't be afraid. You're not alone. You ain't got to do this by yourself. 
I care. I see. I'm aware of what's going on. You need my grace and it's going to be here for you. And manifold, rich abundance, never ending. Maybe, maybe you're there too. Maybe for you it's not, you're not a shepherd on a hillside watching over your flock in the middle of the night. You're tired. You're wondering what's the point. Maybe it's parenting for you. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you got issues going on. Maybe it's your health. You know, God's grace comes to you where you are and what you're doing. He doesn't wait for you to clean it up. He doesn't wait for you to get your act together. They weren't in the temple. They were out in their vocational calling, and God showed up. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Whenever Sarah and I were in Romania, we had just gotten married, and we were on a mission trip there. We learned really quickly that Romanians, and I, I don't like to use this word, but they hate gypsies. If you're Romanian, don't be, don't be angry at me. Maybe things have changed there. This was, I've been married 15 years. 15 years ago, we went to Romania and there was all these gypsy villages. And we're like, man, let's go, let's go preach the gospel over there. They're like, no, we don't have any dealings with the gypsies. Can't trust them. They're deceptive. They run all these schemes and they beg and they, they steal your money. And I, th I thought about that very often. I thought, you know, if, if history changed a little and, and these angels came to a village in Romania, I have no doubt where they would go. They'd go to a gypsy village. Because, I mean, it, it would be the same cultural and, and society application as, as what we hear the shepherds. Came to the shepherds, man. They needed, God wanted to show them from the very beginning, he was going to identify with the outcasts, with the outsiders, with people that have been oppressed and marginalized and mistreated. From the get-go, Jesus wanted to identify with them, and he still does. He still does. So there's the surprising source. There's the surprising recipients. And then the third thing is the surprising consequence. And you can just, we'll, we'll, we'll jump down here. Look at the very last part of this. Got to turn back over there. The very last part of this announcement is just interesting to me. Here, here are our shepherds. It's in the middle of the night. They're on a hillside. They're probably, I mean, I don't know, put yourself there. They're sleepy. They're cold. They probably got a fire going, half asleep. The sound of bleeding sheep in the background. And the Bible says, suddenly, out of nowhere, <laughs> check it out, that's what it says. It says, suddenly, out of nowhere, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That word appeared in Greek, let me be a Greek geek for a minute. That word appeared in Greek. It means to suddenly and dazzlingly stand beside, right beside somebody up in their personal space when before you, nothing was there. Does anybody else in here have a pet peeve that I do? And this is your pastor being nice to you. Don't get in my personal space. I don't like it. I, I, I have, I have a fear. There's like a phobia. I don't want to see your nose hairs or smell your breath or anything, know what you had for breakfast. It just wears me out for some reason. It always has. I'm pretty social and outgoing. But when somebody gets up, seriously, sometimes people do it. They're like, hey, pastor, I got to talk to you. And, and we're like doing circles. I'm like backing up, trying to get away from them, like stand beside them. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. Can you imagine if you were a shepherd? Middle of the night, bat, bleeding sheep, cold, dark, all of a sudden, ta-da! And not just like suddenly another shepherd standing beside you and you're like, ah, get away from me. No, no, no. The angel of the Lord is standing beside you. Not a small thing. Not a small thing. So, so check it out. What happens? And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the, as if that's not enough, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Around, that means like all around them. 
And this word glory of the Lord, it's like the word lamp in Greek. So you're like half asleep, middle of the night, suddenly right beside you, something appears, an angel dazzling. There's this glory, this blinding lamp light brilliance. Would you be like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm going to blog about this. No, you freak out. Look. And they were filled with great fear. Of course they were. We would be too. They were filled with great fear. To the extent, verse 10, that the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You say, well, what's the point here? Well, remember, here's the point. Not only is is there a surprising source of this peace, surprising, uh, surprising roots, surprising recipients, and a surprising uh, response. So they're scared to death. Are you like me? Do you really, I have questions when you read this. You're like, I get it. It's an angel. It's in the middle of the night. They're afraid. They're, they're flipping out a little bit. But have you, I want to know why. Why? So they get it. Okay, oh, this is God just showed up pretty much, okay? God just showed up. So why are they afraid? Why are people afraid of God? Have you ever, that's what I'm, that's what I'm at here. That's what I'm after. Why are we afraid of angels? Why are we afraid of sudden visitations from God? Well, I think the Bible answers that for us because we all know, don't we? Things aren't okay between us and God. There's that peace thing. This angel shows up and we know already there's war. We haven't honored God, have we? Have we? Anybody in here feel like you've obeyed all 10 of the commandments? Like just take today. Just today, it's the Lord's day, it's a Sunday. Surely you got up singing hymns, right? Reading the scripture, showing honor to your spouse and to your kids and like singing, uh, singing songs on the way here, not cutting people off and breaking the speed limit. We've all, you know I mean, we're like righteous people, aren't we? <laughs> no, when God shows up, there's fear that, that, that seizes you and you are unsettled deeply and profoundly because you know things aren't right. God is holy and glorious and I'm not. I'm all the things that that arrest warrant in Romans 3 said. The way of peace, I have my character, my conduct, my conversation, comprehensively, I'm corrupt. And then a holy God shows up and I'm undone. Like Peter in the New Testament, when he found out that Jesus was God. Remember what he said? Depart from me, Lord. When he had this haul of fish, he couldn't even drag them in the boat. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. We had the same reaction. And these angels knew that. God understands us. So what does he say? Fear not. Man, don't you, that's, that is the message of Christmas. You don't have to be afraid anymore because God just showed up and he didn't come to destroy you. He could have. I think a lot of people, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he was like the Danish doctor of dread. He wrote a lot about anxiety and dread. We all think that the hammer at any given moment is about to drop on us, right? We all have this impending in, in, in sense of doom so that the extent that we're anxious all the time. They even, I was reading the other day a, a Wikipedia, so it's got to be true, right? A Wikipedia entry about something called imposter syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? It's this syndrome that people have, good people, competent people, skilled people in their field, like they're the top of their field, but they have this sense of doom that they're going to be found out that they're a fraud, that they're really not what everyone thinks they are, even though they're really, like you're a gifted graphic design artist for Disney, but you got this imposter syndrome that one day somebody's going to really know I'm not as good as they think. a great joy for all people. 
for unto you this very day the Lord and Savior, whose name is Jesus. Is that good news? It is good news. set us free. That's the surprising, you know, whenever there's peace, it usually means somebody surrendered, right? Right? If, some, if there's a war and then suddenly there's peace, like in the in the illustration I used, the Japanese surrendered. They got bombed and they said, we cry uncle, we give up. You win. So if, if there's peace between us and God, that means we've got to surrender, right? To, in, to a superior military force. What happens? You're prisoner, buddy. Welcome to jail for the rest of your life. You're a prisoner. And you're going to be taken captive. And you're going to spend the rest of your life begging and in, in the servitile service to this monarch that defeated you. And, and now there's shame and there's humiliation and your life is over. Oh my goodness, man. Christianity, you know what Christianity says? Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly, John 10.10. 10. That's what he says. He says, no, what you've lived up to this point is not really life. You've been like Heru Onada. You've been hiding in the dense jungle, paranoid in fear, thinking any day they're going to find me and the hammer's going to drop. That's been our life before Jesus. And Jesus shows up and says, are you ready to really live? Because I came to give life. I didn't come to judge you. I came to bring you true peace. I'm the prince of peace. And we say, well, how's that? how can that happen? There's only one way it can happen. Somebody's got to offer a sacrifice to appease God because he's angry. I hope that doesn't bother you. That's in the Bible. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. When I found that in the Bible, it scared me to death. But you know what that passage led to in the book of Psalms? It led me to really comprehend and understand that Jesus came and he stood between the wrath of God and the recipients of that wrath, human beings. That's what Jesus, he came to offer himself as a sacrifice so that we could have peace with God. And that's what Christmas means. Christmas means you don't have to be afraid. It's the end of the war and now we can have peace with Almighty God. So Merry Christmas. Man, that put everybody on edge a little bit. You guys okay? I think that was truly, that was truly a technical difficulty and we're okay. Praise the Lord. Um, so Merry Christmas, everybody. There's true peace. Listen, it's a surprising source. It is a, uh, it's surprising roots, surprising audience. None of us deserve this peace, do we? Anybody think you're worthy to, to, have, uh, to have this offer of peace from God? None of us are. That's the beauty of grace. And then the surprising consequence is like, we're not prisoners, man. Actually, the Bible says God came to set us free. He came to set the captives free and to liberate us. And the most interesting thing to me, and we'll talk about this more another time, you know those shepherds did exactly what the angel told them to do? God knows us so much. He knows this is going to be so astonishing. You're going to need a sign. You're going to want to check this evidence out. So here's your sign. Go over here and you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And they did. They went. They investigated. They found it just as the angel said. And then you know what they did? They went out everywhere declaring what they had seen. Here's these angels, a despised class of people. Nobody would believe them. And Jesus said, I'm entrusting this message to you. Go tell the whole world. Isn't that amazing? God's entrusting this message to us. Go tell the whole world. Merry Christmas. The war is over. Advent. Celebrate peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for protecting us, for, for granting us the safety that we need, uh, for granting us the peace that we need. Lord, no matter what happens, no matter what happens to us, we have peace with God. 
Let the world do its worst. Let the devil do his worst. We are your children. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And that is the best news in the entire world. And so we celebrate that today. I pray if there's anybody here, Lord, who does not know this peace that this, these angels are talking about, the peace that, that Jesus came to bring, would you convict them even now, Lord? Maybe they've been running from you. Maybe they're like that Japanese uh, soldier that's hiding in the dense jungles of the darkness of their own heart. They're in denial. They don't believe the gospel. They think you came to, to punish them and that you're chasing them only so that you can end their life. Lord, may they turn around and see that all along you were inviting them to come and be a recipient of your grace. May they be convicted of that truth in their heart, even now. And I ask and, and, and pray all these things in the na mighty name of Jesus. Amen.